Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther podcast that is coming to you straight from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the very heart and soul of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host for the day, and as always, here to push the buttons and make us all sound good, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are things? Oh, they're fantastic. How are you, Dan? Oh, just lovely. Just lovely. Baseball's back, and we're in spring almost. But we have, still have probably, you know, one more snowstorm, right? Oh, oh, I, I don't count out snowstorms in Michigan until uh, May, June. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then June, it's uh, all of a sudden 100 degrees, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's the changing climate, isn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. So for this podcast being April and all things spring and Earth Day-ish type things, we're going to be talking with Brandon Ward, who wrote the book Living Detroit, Environmental Activism in an Age of Urban Crisis. His research covers so many different aspects of the shifting landscapes of urban and suburban by looking at the impact of environmentalism from the 1930s to the present and taking a very close look at Detroit from its height of power to deindustrialization. He talks about the UAW and its work with conservation and raising awareness of pollution in our neighborhoods. He explains how park systems were created in the Detroit suburbs, the fight by Detroit residents against bulldozers that were destroying homes for what was considered a betterment for Detroit, and the political power struggles of urban and suburban, all at the detriment of the environment. Brendan Ward is a lecturer of history at Parameter College, Georgia State University. He graduated from Purdue University with a PhD in history and a master's of arts from Texas A&M University and has brought together two fields of thought into one, and that is environmental history and urban history. As he said in an article, there is a greening of urban history discipline underway. And you know what? His book, Living Detroit, Environmental Activism in an Age of Urban Crisis, is one of the many that we'll soon be seeing in the near future. So in honor of Earth Day, Here's a podcast that will give you some new perspective to the environmental issues we face today. So, Brandon, thanks for joining Tales from the Ruther Library podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, I've been uh, excited about this. I've been telling people that I was going to go on this podcast, and, and everybody who's worked, uh, researched at Ruther Library has been really excited about that because everybody who's been to Ruther, researched at Ruther, kind of we all share this experience of having that uh, having that connection and, and everybody Everybody loves Ruther. You know, it's if you know, you know. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's great to hear that kind of stuff, because working here, we kind of forget that we are the house of labor history, you can say. And when people walk into that reading room and see the big mural and just, yeah, everybody kind of has that moment of I'm at home. This feels good. Yeah, you guys have a lot of fans out there and, and I'm one of them. (laughs) <laughs> well, cool. Well, I'm a fan of yours now after reading your book. Absolutely. So why don't we just jump into that? The first thing that came across my mind is like, what made you write a book on environmental issues with the backdrop of Detroit? Yeah. Um, I was first sort of interested in this question of um, how people have coped living in really industrialized, polluted uh, environments. Um, because in these places, people depend on those industrial jobs for their livelihoods, but those factories where they were working at were also responsible for polluting their communities, in some cases making the workers ill, um, in some cases making their families ill, Um, but they depended on those factories for their jobs. And so I was interested in the question of how people have um, kind of balanced that need for um, jobs for their incomes, but also working in, in those environments that could sometimes make them sick and how people have been able to push back historically and try to make their working conditions better, their living conditions better. Uh, because for a long time, you know, um, uh, it was assumed that this was just part of the part of the job, part of the environment. For a long time, people thought that smoke equaled prosperity. Um, you know, you heard this a lot in the early 20th century, but you, you heard it up through World War II is that 
smoke coming out of the smokestacks was a good thing. It was a sign that people were working, were making incomes. And so people really depended on these um, places. Um, so I was, I was curious how people navigated that, that line. And then I was also interested in how environmentalism related to uh, the rise of organized labor and, and the decline of organized labor, um, because there's this idea um, that unions and environmentalism just don't get along, that there's going to be an antagonism against each other. And there's been some good reasons for that, um, uh, including probably most famously the uh, loggers in the Pacific Northwest who got involved in these um, logging battles with environmentalists over the spotted owl, which was an endangered uh, creature. But I, was, um, I knew there had been some work done about unions uh, that was, um, uh, talking about how that hadn't always been the case, that there was a lot of actual, actually a lot of overlap between unions and environmentalism. And I kind of wanted to look uh, more deeply at that. Um, I kind of thought that this was going to be a Rust Belt story. Um, and I thought I would be talking about several places, Buffalo, Pittsburgh, Detroit, Toledo, places like that, Cleveland. Um, but then as soon as I went to, uh, up for my first research trip at Ruther, um, I felt really drawn to Detroit, and um, I really figured out very quickly that there was more there that I could look at, and I could do a deeper dive into just Detroit that would let me trace over many decades um, this narrative, this arc, um, and uh, and that there was going to be more there in Detroit than I could ever cover. And, and after working on this, researching and writing this book for 10 years, I'm still finding so much, there's still so much more out there to learn. So it's been um, uh, yeah, it's been a it's been a very rewarding experience to focus on Detroit, and and I hope that comes through in the in the book how much I've uh, gotten out of that. You have dissected Detroit very well, absolutely. Yeah, and it's been quite a journey for you. But in the, the thing is, you do cover a lot, and every person who lives in any kind of Rust Belt city, even not even the Rust Belt, can identify with certain things like sewage wars and the housing and all that stuff. Those are some of the aspects, but to get relate to what everybody's always experienced is that is the highway systems that have come wow. into the cities and how they chopped up the cities or moved people yeah. around. But you got this great quote from Lewis Mumford, this famed architectural critic, stating that highway planners have to realize that these arteries must not be thrust into the delicate tissues of our cities. That was so cool. That is so much. So why don't you just sum up exactly what happened here? Talk to us about what, what highways in your book are doing and and what the trend of greening over the byways and that bulldozing of neighborhoods, all that stuff, man. That's, it's, it's a big yeah. question I just asked, but yeah. I think you can do it. <laughs> yeah. And I love that uh, you picked out that quote from Lewis Mumford, who really uh, has a, had a way with words. Um, and that's, that's exactly right. Is, is that um, planners had big dreams, big ideas and big expectations for what highways could do for the region. And Detroit, of course, is Motown, the Motor City, heavily identified with, of course, the identity built around the automobile and, and as a result, kind of built around um, highways. Um, and um, planners really expected that that uh, highways and expressways um, could um, really make the, the region a livable place, a prosperous place where people and goods and commerce could flow across uh, city and suburban lines, where people could easily get to their jobs downtown and back out to the suburbs, where people could easily go back to the central business di district and do their shopping there. Um, and um, yeah, and that, and they also thought that highways would be this instrument of renewing areas that were um, dilapidated neighborhoods, what they called slums, which I take as kind of a pejorative term now, but that's what they called it, um, that highways were an instrument of slum clearance and what they called urban renewal. Um, but these highways were, were extremely devastating to the places where they were just slapped over, you know, cleared entire, like dozens and dozens of blocks of neighborhoods to put these highways uh, on top of them. And what, and typically these uh, burns were most heavily shouldered by African-American residents. And so um, I-75 and I-375 
uh, I-96, you know, all of these um, had devastating impacts, particularly on African-American neighborhoods. Um, and in their place were built projects like Lafayette Gardens, um, uh, just east of downtown. Um, and, uh, um, but they never really resulted, all, 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 this, all of these urban renewal projects never really bore out the promises of revitalizing uh, the downtown areas, revitalizing the neighborhoods, and in fact, put, you know, placed extreme burdens on the people who were forced out of their homes. And in the case of African-American residents, were forced into a segregated um, housing market where it was very hard to find housing. And so we're having to leave places um, where they had a sense of community, where there were strong, like mutual aid networks, where they had their churches, um, and were forced into, um, were forced to find housing when they had very little, um, uh, uh, you know, in terms of um, money to be able to find the housing and uh, very few options in terms of where they could go. And then those, those same highways that were supposed to renew neighborhoods that, that renewal most often did not happen or and it did not happen for the people who were forced out of their homes. And then it really facilitated uh, the flight, particularly of uh, white Detroiters to the suburbs and then kind of allowed a funneling outward into the suburbs of people, of uh, investment, of capital. Um, and so it, it really, the, the freeways really drain in a lot of ways, the resources and people um, out of Detroit rather than creating um, kind of a system that, that would balance city and suburbs. And so you, you also asked about um, what I think about the trend of trying to um, do something about these old expressways and, and uh, turn them into like um, new greenways, greenways and so on. And I'm really encouraged by the work that's, that's happening. Uh, I-375, which uh, tore through uh, the Black Bottom area um, and displaced, uh, you know, thousands of people um, is now going to be turned into, there's been a commitment by MDOT, uh, Michigan Depart Department of Transportation to turn it into a six lane boulevard with biking and walking and green green spaces. Um, and I'm really encouraged by that. And there's a, 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 a Joe Lewis Greenway project that's gonna be 27 miles of walking and biking paths that kind of circle uh, Detroit and and include a lot of um, neglected Detroit neighborhoods into the into those um, uh, uh, pathways. And there was actually just I was just listening to um, on WDET. Um, they just had a story about that earlier this week. And there's a, a Wayne State um, urban planning student, uh, Rakia Colvin, who's um, really involved in organizing and planning some of these some of these efforts. And they're really cool. And they're they're really um, conscientious of the um, historical impact that expressways have had on people and trying to fix some of those impacts that those have had. So I'm really excited about that. I, I think though that one thing that I think we need to keep in mind is that for the people that were forced out in the 50s and 60s uh, and 40s to make room for the expressways, um, it's too late to help to help them. You know, there's no reparations that come from this as, and, and they've suffered so much by being forced out of their homes to make room for these highways. And so I think it's a good thing. Um, and I hope, I do also hope that these projects don't take the place because they're really splashy, exciting. They get a lot of attention. Um, and I think people get really excited about it. Um, and it's really easy to get like foundation type support for these kinds of big projects that you can put a plaque on and, and say you supported these things. But I hope that that doesn't take the place also of um, uh, ensuring very basic social services are being uh, met in neglected Detroit neighborhoods because it's it's exciting and and um, and people donors want to put their names on things like bikeways and greenways, but things like making sure that sidewalks are being maintained or that, um, you know, there's street lighting in neighborhoods, that kind of thing doesn't get the, the kind of attention that uh, something like a greenway um, gets. So I hope that is also a part of the conversation is making sure that, um, that, that many of these neglected neighborhoods are also, um, we're thinking about delivering the kinds of services that they may need in addition to um, fixing these historical problems with expressways. 
And that is always the issue. It's not the sexy stuff that gets talked about. That's yeah. the sidewalks and maintaining the lights and stuff like yeah. that until it's too late, actually. But I'm glad you brought up this whole thing about circling because, you know, what they're envisioning to a kind of a circle mm-hmm. path around Detroit. Because the next question kind of like it's a nice segue because Detroit has a very unique park system. Well, the Detroit metro area has a unique park system. I mean, I grew up in D.C. and parks are integrated everywhere all over the city and you have mm-hmm. rock creek park cutting in, into the northwest section but with detroit this was someone did you introduce in the book never heard of uh, genevieve gillette who thought of this idea of these metro parks that kind of surround and connect the suburbs with a green park area now but who one who is she <laughs> i've never heard of her before yeah, yeah. and can you explain what these metro parks are and how they came into your conversation about mm, environmental equality i i love genevieve gillette i think yeah she seemed um, cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and I, when you work on a project for for years and um you know look through papers from for so many hours of these of these people you you start to have some people that you just like really gravitate to and really like fall in love with and uh Genevieve Gillette is one and somebody who I'm I'm sure we'll talk about later Olga Madar is another <laughs> is another person um but I think Genevieve Gillette really deserves um a lot of credit and uh, more attention than than she has gotten for the, what she did for um, developing parks in the state of Michigan. And um, she's a really interesting character. She grew up um, near turn of the century. Uh, her family had a farm um, uh, uh, near Grand Rapids on the Grand River. Um, and um, this was a time period before a state park system even existed. Uh, she said that people would drive around on the country roads and stop at her farm wanting to place a picnic on the river and so would come up to her house and, and Genevieve Gillette was kind of responsible for letting them letting them in and um, making sure that the livestock didn't escape. And so she would joke that she was uh, Michigan's first park ranger um, as a result. Um, but something that happens to her family farm that I think really shapes her outlook on why parks are important and why preserving land for um, the future uh, is important. And, and that is that a power company came in and wanted to put in a hydroelectric dam, and that was going to flood the family farm. Um, and, uh, and so they were essentially bullied into uh, selling their land to this power company. And so before they sold the land, they um, uh, cut down the trees and sold that for lumber because this was all going to be underwater anyway. So they were trying to get a little, a little income out of it. And what happens is that the, the, the electric company ends up pulling out of the project after they had really destroyed all this, this land. And, uh, and then she says that after that happened, nobody wanted to come back and, and use that as, as picnic space, as, as like this ad hoc park space anymore, because they had done so much ruin to it. And so I think that gave her this sense that people um, that that parks really um, needed to be preserved for people and as a check against corporate power and that parks were democratic. Um, and so she was really interested in, uh, so that, be, that sort of starts her from a very young age, starts her interest in parks. And like I said, this is before a park system even exists. Um, she uh, um, ends up going and working with um, a famed uh, architect, landscape architect in Illinois, um, who convinces her to go back to Michigan and build parks. And so uh, this is in uh, the, the 1920s and uh, 1930s. She becomes really, becomes really involved in lobbying for uh, a state park system. Um, uh, P.J. Hoffmaster, uh, who's really give, given the credit as the first superintendent of the parks, really couldn't have done it and who did a lot to to um, support the creation of state parks really couldn't have done it without Genevieve Gillette, who really works tirelessly to uh, lobby uh, state government to make this to make this happen. Um, but one of the things that she becomes interested in doing is um, when she's in Detroit, um, she moves to Detroit, she uh, is involved in creating this Greenbelt town um, uh, just north of uh, Detroit. And that town was a, a New Deal project that was a planned town 
where uh, the idea is that workers should be able to own a piece of land to garden on, to have a small house on um, with really pleasant uh, scenery, pleasant settings with a lake nearby. Um, and uh, so she becomes involved in kind of this town planning and um, uh, working to support um, working class people having access to nature, having access to gardens. And that again kind of convinces her that people needed park space to kind of rejuvenate, revitalize, and to kind of act as a check on urbanization and industrialization. There was this idea um, in the progressive era, a little bit before this, that parks were kind of the lungs of a city. The green space would balance out factories and industrialization. Um, and so, and I think she really, she believed that. Um, and uh, wanted to create a system for Detroit where ordinary people would be able to go and find that sort of sort of restorative relaxation in nature. Um, and so she is really uh, plays a prominent role in creating the Metro Park system, uh, in lobbying the government to create that um, for the uh, counties of Southeast Michigan. And these parks really get um, developed and built on the sub kind of fringe of Detroit um, at this time. But it was seen as those were places where you could build really big parks for a lot cheaper because the land was still available. It was on you know, flood zones and, and along rivers and had a really scenic quality to them. And so they, they go about the um, Huron Clinton Metropolitan Authority, which is uh, the, the agency that builds these metro parks, really goes about building a lot of parks on the suburban fringe. And um, this was, I mean, I think, uh, really great for the region. But the problem is with this, that this there were no parks that were built in the city of Detroit. The city of Detroit had very little parkland to begin with. Um, there weren't a lot of major parks. There's like Rouge Park and, and a couple of others, uh, Belle Isle and the Detroit River, but not a lot of really major parks. But Detroit was paying the majority of monies into the Metro Park system. And so, um, a years later, like towards the 1970s, this would end up being a really big bone of contention when the Metro Parks wanted to expand, once again, still even further out in the suburbs, sometimes, sometimes 50 miles away from downtown Detroit, where a lot of Detroiters start reacting to that and saying, why are we, you know, funding so much of the Metro Park system when there isn't even, a, a, you know, one Metro Park that's located near downtown where so many African-Americans live, where so many African-Americans who are sort of deprived of a lot of recreational amenities live. Um, and so parks would really um, help raise property values in the suburbs um, and make the suburbs pleasant places to, to live, but they weren't doing a lot for the city of, of Detroit. And so that becomes really an issue of contention for a lot of Detroiters by the 1970s. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Like, and and it's, it, it shows a lot. And it's, it's the same kind of thing in a lot of cities as well. It's like, you know, you have these big green parks outside and it's hard to bring those living in the city out to them. And it's a contention, I think, that everybody who lives in any kind of city can identify with. But um, now the beat of your book, though, you, you mentioned the UAW a lot. The UAW was very prevalent within talking about environmentalism before environmentalism was known as a word. Um, you can actually call Walter Ruther kind of a pragmatic environmentalist in a way. I mean, he, was, he understood yeah. that his members needed to fish in lakes that were pure and they could breathe fresh air. And as you mentioned before, he, he, uh, Olga Madar was the person he picked to really um, drive this home. Um, could you give us one, one, could you just give a brief description of Olga Madar? She is a dynamo. But um, what kind of thing did she do that raised environmental consciousness for the workers and, and for Detroit itself? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and like I said, like Genevieve Gillette, I really fell in love with Olga Mandar and, and was really um, found her to be an, an, an extremely inspiring character. She really was a tireless advocate for um, environmental issues and recreation uh, within recreation issues within the, the union. And um, uh, Walter Ruther, 
um, as you mentioned, a pragmatic environmentalist, and Ruther was kind of a pragmatic everything. Um, and this would get him in a, in a lot of trouble with a lot of people who wanted him to be more radical. But um, he he makes this really um, smart choice, I think, of appointing uh, Olga Madar as his recreation department director um, uh, in the late 1940s. And Olga Madar right away um, was really interested in, in um, elevating the um, role that the recreation department could play in um, what we would consider like social justice type issues. So for Olga Madara, it wasn't just about creating softball clubs for the union um, and, and it wasn't just about creating some, you know, um, sports programs and that sort of thing, which, which she did and which she saw as an important part of building solidarity. But it was also about using recreation to push for progress on racial issues and on gender issues. And so she's involved in doing things like pushing for um, uh, uh, the integration of bowling leagues and pushing for uh, the end of sex segregated and race segregated shooting clubs. She works with the National Rifle Association actually um, to do that. Uh, she gets involved in um, pushing the boat club of Belle Isle to integrate. So she was just really in, in, interested and was really um, um, active and, and energetic about using her position as recreation director, which I think was something that people saw as a uh, Kind of a fluffy type position. It was the type of position where you could where you could appoint a woman into because women at this time were seen as being soft on, in terms of collective bargainers, not tough enough to to do like really a lot of the organizing work and the real tough work that the the union did. But you could put them in charge of the women's department or the recreation department. But she was really able to use that position and 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 really um, kind of maximize the impact that that a recreation department. Uh, could have. And she starts being involved in, by the 1960s, in really pushing environmental issues as far as uh, clean water initiatives, um, getting involved in federal conferences and throwing the union's weight behind clean water legislation in the 1960s. And this was taking place even before um, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which is a book that really opened most, a lot of Americans' eyes to the kind of problems of pollution and the ways that toxins were kind of affecting uh, not just the environment leading to a silent spring um, when birds would no longer uh, you know, hatch and, and uh, sing in the spring, but also how it was affecting people's, um, the health of people's families and so on. But the UAW was really ahead of this and Olga Madar was really talking about pollution issues before, uh, before that. And so she helps get the UAW throwing its weight behind environmental legislation um, and uh, the union membership as a whole, which had a lot of people who were you know, sportsmen who were involved in hunting clubs, who, who wanted to see the rivers and lakes and campgrounds be cleaned up, were also kind of forcing from below um, action on environmental issues. And so together, Olga Madar and kind of uh, UAW members from below at the grassroots level were really able to push Walter Ruther into adopting um, environmental uh, efforts as a as a, an important part of the UAW in the 1960s, and this kind of dovetailed with Walter Ruther um, wanting to have a close relationship with uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society, um, and so um, Walter Ruther is kind of invited out to um, be a part of some of these environmental conferences that take place under the the uh, Johnson administration. Um, but it was really kind of the membership and Olga Madar who kind of, um, I think, push Walter Ruther to, to be active on this and to see it as, as being a, a, an issue that you could really get um, members to, to gravitate around. And then Olga Madar um, ends up doing a lot in terms of um, anti-pollution work towards the late 1960s and into the early 1970s. The UAW creates a separate, out of the recreation department, creates a separate conservation and resource development department. And this kind of becomes a really active department uh, with a very small staff, but a really vigorous staff 
doing things like creating the Downriver Anti-Pollution League, which in the Downriver suburbs was going around, knocking on doors, walking through neighborhoods, talking to people and seeing how pollution from the factories was affecting them. And so they were really um, instrumental in kind of like raising uh, raising environmental issues in these working class and industrial uh, communities. And so, um, yeah, Olga Madar was really just a tireless uh, worker on behalf of the environment and really pushed um, the, the union to, to adopt a more environmental stance than it, than it otherwise probably would have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there's, there's another part of your, your book that, that talks about, you know, that we, we've been talking about is, is the, the, the play, what happened to the African-Americans living in these, in the cities, um, being forced out of housing for, uh, for um, highways, uh, not getting enough green space. And how you write about the black experience in Detroit towards environmentalism is more of like defense against the bulldozer. Um, we can talk about Wayne State if we want to about that one, um, but I'll then become proactive. And can you elaborate on that statement? They became more proactive. The, the community came together somehow. Yeah. Um, so I start, the, I start the book talking about Eleanor Roosevelt in 1935, comes to Detroit, and she, uh, standing next to the Detroit Housing Commissioner, Josephine Fellows Goman, uh, kicks off uh, uh, an era of slum clearance uh, in Detroit by leveling several blocks um, of the Black Bottom area of Detroit. Um, and this really, as, as I um, talk about in the book, really kicks off basically three decades where slum clearance was kind of like the main um, tool of urban planners for urban renewal. And um, like I talked about with the highways, this, this had devastating effects on the residents who, who lived there, whose um, homes, whose lives were uprooted in order to make way for sometimes housing, uh, public housing projects, but um, more often like residential projects like, like in Lafayette Gardens. Um, and um, so most of the benefits of the room free urban renewal projects were not going back to the African-Americans who were paying the biggest price in terms of the burden they were having to, to bear for these urban renewal, renewal projects. And that's not to say that urban renewal, or at least um, that's not to say that everything was um, perfect in these neighborhoods, like in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. A lot of these residential neighborhoods were in extremely dilapidated conditions, particularly in the black neighborhoods where codes were rarely enforced on um, absentee landlords, on slumlords, um, and where city services routinely neglected black neighborhoods. And so you'd have garbage failing to be picked up. And so garbage would pile up in the alleys and that would kind of invite rodents and other uh, vermin to, to these neighborhoods. And um, there were extremely high rates of things like tuberculosis um, because of the, the living conditions of these places. Um, but, you know, these were also places of deep community. I mentioned before where there was a lot of mutual aid support, um, where people had churches they could depend on, neighbors they could depend on. Um, and that was kind of, and that was just wiped out by, by bulldozers. And so these black neighborhoods were considered, you know, eminently disposable. You also had other projects like Wayne State University uh, further causing disruptions. I tell the story of uh, Mildred Smith in the book. She was twice kicked out of houses in order to make way for urban renewal projects. And um, then yet a third time in 1966, uh, she was asked to move yet again in order to make room for a Wayne State University expansion project. Uh, this time, she and an interracial group of neighbors joined together in the West Central Organization to literally stand up to bulldozers and police and the housing, housing commissioner who came to condemn her home. And they protested at the city council, at the mayor's house, at the housing commissioner's house. Uh, about 20 of them were arrested. Um, it got a lot of media fanfare. It was called the Battle of Hobart Street. And um, in one of the rare kind of, I think, um, success stories, this actually worked. And at least for a time being, um, the approval was rescinded by the city council for this particular project. Um, a few years later, um, the house that they were able to save of Mildred Smith's 
ends up becoming um, an, an environmental field school. And Mildred Smith remained active in the neighborhood and, and, and talked about how urban renewal was an environmental issue and how housing issues were inherently environmental. And so she was the story of someone who I think um, began to identify how slum clearance, urban renewal, um, housing conditions were environmental issues and kind of saw how that struggle was similar to the emerging environmental movement, which often was kind of ignorant of urban issues and which they were always trying to get the environmental movement, kind of mainstream environmental movement to pay more attention to the city. But they started, people started seeing the things that they were facing as being environmental issues. That was also the case with some of these ex expressway projects that by the 1960s, people started fighting back against the um, a group forms to fight um, expansion of the Jeffries Freeway called the Jeffries uh, Freeway Action Body. And this get, gets a lot of clergy members involved, a lot of uh, 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 black residents involved. Um, and once again, they weren't successful in stopping the project from being built, the expressway from being built, but they started talking about how the expressway was going to cause environmental issues like emissions from the, from the automobiles, like noise pollution, um, and how the highways would cut people off from maybe there's a park right on the other side of the expressway, but if there's an expressway between your house and the park, there's no way for you to, to, get, to get there without getting in a car. And even in the early 1970s, something like a third of Detroiters didn't, didn't own a car. That might be a little high. I think it was somewhere in the 20s, but um, a significant number of people didn't own cars. Um, and so they started talking about expressways and uh, urban renewal as being environmental issues. And they started organizing around, around those issues. And they were even in the case of the Jeffries Freeway Action Body and some of these other um, efforts to stop the building of the expressways, even though they weren't successful, they were able to push Governor George Romney and the state legislature to adopt legislation that would require the state um, to rehouse people um, before construction of those places began. So no longer would they people have to be forced out and then find housing and not have um, anywhere to go. It's a really modest step um, and it really did not confront the gravity of the problem and the fact that they were being kicked out of their homes for an expressway. But I think it's important, though, to know when they're that that this wouldn't even those modest protections wouldn't have been possible without that collective collective action. And then um, I think the the 1967 uprising in Detroit was also really a, a seminal event in terms of thinking about environmental issues and thinking about how the conditions of the 12th Street area where the uprising took place. Um, how that was kind of indicative of um, really how African-Americans were treated on the whole, how there were very few recreation opportunities um, and groups like New Detroit Incorporated, which form in the wake of uh, the Detroit uprising to really reimagine a, a future for Detroit. We're really thinking about how to incorporate parks and recreation opportunities um, into Detroit um, and, and seeing that as being a necessary part of making a livable and sustainable city. Absolutely. That's, that's perfect. So we talked about briefly about, you know, what you saw with highways coming in and the greenways with that, but like any good book, we don't want to know what like, you know, learn from the past for the future. So what do you hope when someone reads this book, they get out of it, you know, on the huge environmental umbrella that you uh, bring down on in your book? I think one of the interesting things is that I, I've heard more from other people telling me what they think is important about my book. I'm more than I've been able to sort of identify <laughs> what the book can, can do for the future, but that's kind of cool that other people see things in your book that you didn't even see yourself. And this is kind of one of those things is that um, I think finishing this book I was finishing it in the midst of a COVID crisis and in the midst of an ongoing climate crisis too. And um, I think both of them are con have connections to this book or this, this book sort of shines a light on both of them actually. Um, with COVID, we've seen 
that the patterns of African-Americans facing higher rates of illnesses, uh, facing higher rates of infection with COVID, facing higher death rates from COVID, there's a long history of African-Americans facing higher rates of illness having to do um, with historical inequalities in the cities. Um, and things like um, high rates of tuberculosis went back to the beginning of the early 20th century for African-Americans. And so I think, I hope this book contributes to better understanding how and why living in challenging built environments, how people, why it's been so, why people have found it so important to make their living conditions better. Because this for many people was an issue of the health of their family. And in some cases, an issue of, of life and death. So the environment for a lot of people and environmental activism wasn't something just trying to like preserve a you know distant wilderness to go and visit <clears throat> on the weekends, but was important for them to make a place where their families could be healthy and where they could thrive and, 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 and um, live decent lives. Um, the other is the, the climate crisis. And I think the climate crisis is, is often framed as though it's going to come for us all eventually, that nobody's going to be able to escape us and it's going to affect everybody. And that is, that is of course, true. But I think we have to remember that it's going to have impacts that affect people unequally along race and class and, and gender lines and, and beyond. And we hear a lot about, and well, and so, Going back to how that connects to my to my book, like the urban crisis affected the D Detroit region in general, but it affected certain people more than it affected others. And suburbanite, suburbanites, to a very um, uh, to to a great extent, were able to wall themselves off from the consequences of the urban crisis, and to um, to really feel like they didn't have any responsibility for what was going on in the central city and with the urban crisis. And I think you, we will see that pattern play out with the climate crisis where people of means are able to sort of wall themselves off and protect themselves from the consequences of the climate crisis. And so being able to see how we all are contributing and all um, have a role to play uh, is gonna be important in terms of how we address the climate crisis. And that's exactly what I got out of it too. I mean, yes, environmentalism, greening, preserving, and that kind of stuff, but we always forget, oh, there was a sewage war. Where is the water going to go and who's going to have the water? Right, right, um, exactly. Things like that and how it's going to affect so many millions of people. And the wall off, I like, like how you said, the wall off of suburbia. And that is exactly what happens. The power remains, builds able to build a wall and forget about the rest so yeah. kind of thing. Now, I, this, is, this is our last question. We always love to ask our researchers, what collections were you using at the Ruther Library? And what other places did you go? And specifically for you, Brandon, because yeah. you dissected and looked at something different. You were looking into the word words that clued into you that's like, that, that was an environmental issue. They were doing environmental things. So a little extra research for you there, wasn't there? Yeah, and I think I went into this project um, somewhat naive. Um, I thought <laughs> that I thought that um, people would be talking a lot about the environment. Of course, I mean they live next to factories, or they live in um, a neighbor, a neglected neighborhood um, with overgrown weeds, or and and that's not being taken care of by the city. And so I thought people were going to be talking about environmental issues throughout the time period that I'm looking at. Um, but you know, nobody was really calling themselves an environmentalist in this, this time period that my book is about. But I still think there is an environmental activism story here. So what I found frustrating at the beginning, what I was a bit naive about was thinking that I would just be able to find those words very easily throughout the sources. And what I and so on my first trip to the Ruther Library, after a couple of days, I was feeling kind of um, I was feeling kind of discouraged <laughs> and I was feeling like I just wasn't finding what I was expecting to find. And I think there's, we'll come back to that in just a second. But I, I remember having this kind of aha moment um, uh, on the morning before I came in for my third day, I always kind of started by going to a coffee shop and kind of really just jotting down, making up a game plan, thinking about what I wanted to look at for the day and thinking like, 
you're not going to you're not finding this because nobody was talking about these as environmental issues. And so what you need to do is start looking in, you know, folders about uh, civil rights or housing department collections or the UAW health department and just really taking an expansive view about the environment and not being so kind of narrowly focused on what you think they they should have thought was an important environmental issue. So it kind of took some kind of takes some humility humility to realize that we're looking at it from a very different point of view and a language that we have now that they didn't have about environmental justice or environmentalism. Um, but I think that we do see these, um, but I think it's still important to see these as environmental issues because otherwise you just start to assume that environmentalism is something that middle-class suburban people do and working-class people or inner city residents don't care about the environment. That was kind of the belief for a long time. So one of the, the things that I decided, became really interested in is talking about how people were interested in their environment. It was just, they were interested in, in, in different ways and in ways that in some cases were more close to them. It wasn't about you know distant wilderness or endangered species. A lot of times it was about just making sure the neighborhood was getting trash collected. And that was an environmental issue to them that was just as important as suburbanites fighting for you know nicer parks, which I think is, is also um, a relevant environmental issue for them. Um, so once I started to open that, my kind of my my vision up to that, then I started seeing it in places and being able to find it in, like I said, housing department collections and and that sort of thing. And so um, I really uh, and in recreate the recreation department of Olga Madar and Olga Madar's papers were extremely helpful for me. And then her conservation and resource development department collection was also uh, really instrumental, really instrumental to me. And another, I guess, related problem, though, uh, that I had with research was I didn't just want to talk about what um, people in, in the in sort of executive positions in the union were thinking about the environment and were doing. I, I think it is very important to understand what uh, the UAW or other unions as institutions are doing and how they're acting and what they're pushing for. But I, but I don't think you, I think you have to be careful not to conflate what they are doing and assume that they are always representing the, um, the, the rank and file of their union. So I was also really um, wanted to see what the rank and file were thinking about these issues. And for that, I found really helpful at Ruther and other places um, uh, uh, newspapers from the lo the union locals themselves, and those provided great insight, you know, into what they were thinking about, how they were fighting for better, you know, fishing holes and cleaning up rivers and streams that they could fish at, and having hunting grounds both close to the city and and further away in the wilderness, and cleaning up campgrounds and having nice places to to camp and 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 build cabins and so on, and so. Um, newspapers were really essential, as well as kind of the uh, union local collections were also very helpful Helpful for that. Uh, local 600, mm -hmm. uh, the big uh, Rouge, uh, Ford River Rouge um, uh, factory um, was helpful for me seeing just how um, locals were doing different things and thinking slightly differently oftentimes than the international union was, was thinking about issues. And they, the other thing that I really uh, liked a lot was the um, collection of the Revolutionary Union Movement uh, newspapers, um, also at, at Ruther Library, um, because that gave me a sense of what Black workers were thinking and how that really drastically diverged from what the union uh, was thinking about environmental uh, issues. And for um, Black workers, you know, they were really concerned about uh, environmental conditions on the shop floor. And the fact that um, uh, black workers were being um, forced into positions that exposed them to greater health and safety risks, um, forced them to um, uh, have proximity to, to hazardous materials and to handle hazardous materials, and the fact that that caused them to get sick uh, more often than um, white workers who didn't uh, work in those dangerous uh, departments of the, of the factories. Uh, so I really found um, those to be helpful resources uh, also to kind of help balance. So I wasn't just getting the organization, organizational perspective on things, but also seeing what workers, rank and file workers were, were doing and thinking. 
Um, and then, so I, I spent a lot of time at Ruther Library. The other place I spent the most time was uh, uh, ben, uh, Bentley Historical right. uh, Library at uh, Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan. Um, and um, that's where the Genevieve Gillette papers were. And, and um, they also have a collection there that I really liked, which is uh, Jack Van Covering uh, papers. Jack Van Covering was a Detroit Free Press outdoors uh, feature writer for many, many years. Um, and he very early um, was talking about the ways that industrial pollution uh, were affecting outdoors recreational opportunities. And he had a really close relationship with um, working class conservationists. Um, he worked with the Michigan United Conservation Clubs, which had a lot of union members involved in it. Um, and uh, really invited a lot of people, um, working class people who lived in place in, in the downriver suburbs um, to, to write in and talk about how those factories there were affecting their ability to fish and hunt and, um, and, and get out in, in uh, natural settings. Um, and so that was really, that was a really cool uh, collection. And, and I think um, I, I really talking about getting kind of the working class perspective that also helped me to see how people were writing and, and really concerned about their their um, living conditions that were being affected by downriver factories uh, as just one instance. Um, so yeah, uh, Ruther and Bentley were my, my two main sources and then a lot of newspapers um, and local newspapers uh, to kind of to support that as well. You covered it all. You covered it all, Brandon. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, your book, Living Detroit, Environmental Activism in the Age of Urban Crisis is going to be a must read, I imagine, for anybody, not only in the union movement, but environmental movements as well. So thanks again. Thank you so much for having me, Dana. This was really fun. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. So in honor of Dirt Day, let me start that again. Dirt Day? I think I I said Dirt Day. (laughs) Dirt Day? (laughs) Dirt Day. It is. I'm moving it from Earth Day to Dirt Day. (laughs) Dirt, 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 dirt.